Hi everyone, this is Dr. David Blumke in Madison, Wisconsin. This is the second installment of the September 2018 issue. A few comments before we get going. Last week, I was in Sao Paulo, Brazil, teaching cardiovascular MRI as a faculty member in a large international course. I was speaking with another faculty member about podcasts. He asked how I decide which articles from each issue to podcast. We publish about 25 articles each month, but there's only time to podcast six to eight articles. The short answer, I try to highlight top articles that might have broad interest to most listeners. I also try to highlight topics in different areas so you get an overall sense of what is happening in the field. There is an additional tool that I use to determine which articles to podcast. For all of our articles, there is a score posted on our radiology website. It is called the Altmetric Score. A higher Altmetric Score means there has been news media interest in the topic or blogs or tweets. The top Altmetric Scores are about 1,000, and some articles have a score of zero. I use the Altmetric Score to give me an idea of broad interest in the topic. In that regard, I want to briefly discuss one article for you that has received some attention. It is not our usual heavy science article. On my Twitter feed, I highlighted this article today, and it received more attention than our science articles. I suppose that says something about Twitter, or maybe just about my other less exciting tweets. The short title is, Barriers to Safety Event Reporting, Authority of Gradients and Other Human Factors. It is a complex title, but the topic is simple and straightforward. The authors present a survey from their radiology department at Beth Israel Deaconess Hospital. The topic of the survey was whether staff members report safety problems, and if not, why not? The first author is Dr. Bettina Seward. Safety reporting. Not heavy science, but it is worth your time to look at this. Some of you run a department or run a section in your department. You may be on a hospital or department safety committee. If you have not served on one of those committees, I strongly recommend it. Unfortunately, you will not see the good safety issues, only the problems, but you will learn a lot. The underlying premise of the authors is that all staff members are critical for patient safety. And further, safety is democratic. Safety issues identified by a technologist are just as important as safety issues reported by an attending physician or nurse. I have no doubt, if I ask heads of radiology departments what keeps them up at night, it will be the constant threat of safety problems or accidents in their departments. Safety problems are not just related to quality of care. Safety problems are financial problems, liability problems, and sometimes career-ending problems. At Beth Israel, the authors sent surveys to 648 staff members. This included physicians, nurses, residents, technologists, and administrators. More than half, or 363 staff members, filled out the survey. The results. Number one, only half of the staff indicated they always report safety problems. Remarkably, half of the staff does not always report safety problems or violations. This is a potential issue. I will frame point number two as a quiz question. Which group in the radiology department is least likely to speak up about safety issues? The answer, the residents and fellows. 89% do not report safety problems by their own admission another potential nightmare for your department head. The other groups that do not always report safety problems, schedulers, technologists, and transport staff, more than 50% do not report problems. Number three, what is the most important reason that safety problems are not reported? The most common reason, 
the staff only wanted to report problems unless they were absolutely certain they were right. They did not want to cry wolf. I suppose that is very common. Most of us do not want to make a fuss for no reason. Part of that could have been part of 9-11. I'm sure those flying instructors thought the pilot training was a little odd, or landlords marveled at all the cash paid for the apartments and hotels. Now we go to the airport, we are told, if you see something, say something. But we do not do this at our hospitals and clinics. That behavior is not encouraged. Number four, the second most common barrier. This is termed the authority gradient. A study in 1966, nurses obeyed the wrong physician order 80% of the time, even when they knew it was wrong. In my experience, that problem with nurses no longer exists, but we still have huge issues with residents and fellows. A large proportion do not report safety problems, probably because of their junior status. We frequently talk about the captain of the ship in hospitals. The captain is supposed to know everything and be responsible for everything that goes on. That attitude results in a lot of lawsuits against physicians, and the captain of the ship approach is really detrimental to patient safety. Another major problem, lack of listening. Staff indicated that no one had or would listen to their safety issues. In conclusion, we all lose when safety issues happen in a hospital or in private clinics. As a manager, you might feel anxious even now, thinking that only half of your staff will mention a safety problem. Each of you are staff members, and you remember those small safety issues that happened. And usually, you get away with it, no bad outcomes. But next time it may happen, the authors of this interesting article have included a web link to the survey they used. You might want to compare your practice results with theirs. Next, on to some of our science articles for September. Our first article today is about 7T MRI and safety. The title is Ex Vivo Mercury Release from Dental Amalgam After 7T and 1.5T MRI. The authors are Drs. Yilmaz and Addison from Anktinas University in Antalya, Turkey. It's nice to see that authors in Turkey know about the journals and are submitting interesting research. People in the U.S. are most familiar with Istanbul on the Bosphorus Strait, the crossroads between Europe and Asia. Beyond that, Ankara is the main engineering center of Turkey, and people such as Dr. Ergen Adalar from Ankara have had major impact on the practice of MRI. Antalya is 450 miles, or 730 kilometers, south of Istanbul, on the Mediterranean Sea. In 2011, Antalya was the third most visited city in the world, surpassing New York. Background. As you are probably aware, Siemens is now producing a 7T MRI that is designed for clinical use. In the U.S., the 7T scanner is now approved by the Food and Drug Administration, as well as receiving approval in Europe. Previously, 7T scanners were only designated as research devices. Why do we want 7T MRI? The same question was probably asked when 3T MRI was first developed. Similar to 7T, the general answer is the same, better signal-to-noise ratio. In MRI, more signal translates into two areas, the ability to obtain higher resolution images. The second area is spectroscopy. Spectroscopy signals are very small, and the signal of various metabolites are better seen at 7T. What about clinical applications? Temporal lobe epilepsy is thought to be a potential application. In 2011, an article in Radiology suggested that hippocampal sclerosis is better depicted at 7T. In addition, 
you have probably seen amazing 7T images of brain vascularity. This may be critical for determining boundaries and vascularity of brain tumors. Cartilage imaging may also benefit from 7T imaging. What about 7T safety? We know very little about this to date, and there are few published articles on 7T safety. Nearly all experience is from research sites. Many centers are said to exclude all patients with implanted devices and with tattoos. Dr. Frank Shellock is famous for his work on MRI safety. In 2014, he published an article about various implanted devices at 7T. This included aneurysm clips, surgical clips, and orthopedic implants and breast biopsy markers. Of 28 implants, there were eight with concerns at 7T. Safety concerns include heating of the implant and deflection or pulling of the implant by the magnetic field. Large artifacts from the metal implants are also a practical concern. Dental implants are the most commonly encountered type of implant. Dental fillings can be made from precious materials such as gold, but for 200 years, a material called dental amalgam has also been used. That's the silver material that most people my generation had when they were children. Dental amalgam contains about 50% mercury. Dental amalgam is used in about 100 million procedures in the United States per year. Since 2008, dental amalgam has been forbidden or restricted in Sweden, Norway, Denmark, and Germany. The European Parliament has adopted a ban on amalgam use in children younger than 15 and in pregnant women. What is the concern with mercury and dental amalgam? Mercury can be released by evaporation of mercury and then inhaled, or the mercury ions are released into the saliva. Free mercury has detrimental effects on the body, and federal agencies limit our exposure to mercury. Purpose The purpose of the study was to see if mercury was released from dental amalgam at 1.5T or 7T MRI. Methods The authors started with human teeth that were extracted for various reasons other than dental cavities. For the experiment, new cavities or holes were made in the teeth. The cavities were then filled by standard procedures with dental amalgam. After the dental procedure, the teeth were polished to remove the residual mercury. All teeth were evaluated nine days later. There were 60 teeth. They were placed in 20 mLs of artificial saliva in tubes. 20 teeth underwent 7T MRI, 20 underwent 1.5T MRI. 20 teeth were controls and did not have MRI exposure. The MRI protocol was a standard pre- and post-gadolinium contrast brain MRI protocol lasting about 20 minutes. 24 hours after MRI exposure, the artificial saliva was removed from the tubes for analysis. To determine the amount of mercury, mass spectrometry was used to measure the amount of mercury in the saliva. Results. The mean mercury measurement in the control group was 141 micrograms per liter. In the 1.5 T group, it was 172. There was no statistical difference between control and 1.5 T. At 7 T, the average mercury content was 673 micrograms per liter. That was about four times higher than the control group. The difference was statistically significant. Conclusion. The authors studied human teeth removed from the body and filled with dental amalgam. There was evidence that mercury in the artificial saliva was four times higher at 7T than in the control group. What does this mean? Why might there be mercury release at 7T? We do not exactly know. One possibility is there was heating at 7T. 
heating is known to result in increased mercury release from dental fillings. The authors did not measure the temperatures during the MRI. Another possibility is some other radiofrequency or static field effect at 7T. Does this mean that people with dental fillings should not have 7T MRI? I would say probably no. The study has two problems. First, it was on very fresh dental fillings, nine days after the filling was placed. The authors commented that the filling was not fully polished as would be done for a human. Also, if you take a look at your own dental filling, you might notice the filling is not bright silver. The filling has oxidation on the surface. That oxidized surface is thought to reduce mercury release. Final thoughts. There are very few studies of implants of any kind at 7T. If we perform clinical studies, we want to establish safety to the extent possible. We want to weigh risks and benefits. If you have epilepsy and have a metal filling, your medical condition may be more important. Perhaps for now, we would be cautious if a dental filling was recently placed. Hopefully this study will stimulate more research regarding 7T safety. But the article also points out that we want to use caution initially with 7T studies. These will be increasing in frequency, and it is reasonable to be quite cautious with this new modality. Our next article is about calcification in the brain. The title is Hippocampal Calcifications, Risk Factors, and Association with Cognitive Function. The first author is Dr. Esther de Brouwer from Utrecht in the Netherlands. Background. The topic is dementia and whether brain calcification is associated with dementia. Dementia includes Alzheimer's disease and vascular brain lesions. These lead to atrophy of brain cortex and the hippocampus. Hippocampus calcification has been studied pathologically. The calcification seems to be related to vasculopathy and fibrosis. Calcification is associated with neuronal loss. A reasonable conclusion may be that hippocampal calcification resulting from vascular abnormalities contributes to atrophy of the hippocampus. The hippocampus is associated with memory function. The authors ask the question, is hippocampal calcification associated with cognitive function? And what factors lead to hippocampal calcification? Methods. The authors evaluated 2,000 patients who were referred to the memory clinic at their institution. Patients had an extensive evaluation of cognitive function. Patients were assessed for dementia, including Alzheimer's disease. In addition, all patients had a CT scan of the brain. They also had clinical history about various risk factors that might be related to hippocampal classification. For the CT scans, the authors looked near the posterior horns of the lateral ventricles to identify hippocampal calcification in the temporal lobes. If you have not looked at a brain CT for a while, the predominant posterior and lateral calcification is of the choroid plexus. The choroid plexus produces cerebrospinal fluid. Calcification of the choroid plexus is considered to be a normal variant. Hippocampal calcification is just medial to this in the brain substance of the temporal lobe. The authors scored hippocampal calcification as present or absent on one or both sides. They also scored calcification as mild, moderate, or severe. Mild was one high attenuation area. Moderate was multiple areas. Severe was confluent calcification. Results. The average age of the patients was 78. Nine did not get a CT scan, so 1,991 patients were included. 20% had hippocampal calcification. 40% were men. 60% were women.
Recently, we spoke in this podcast about multivariable regression analysis. That approach was used in this article. This is done to add up all of the factors you can think of that might cause calcification. Age and gender are always included. Educational level is used to measure socioeconomic status. Lifestyle and economic status is often related to the prevalence of disease. Statistical software gives a weighting to all of the various factors. Which ones are most important to predict who had hippocampal calcification? When all of the risk factors were added together, there were only three main factors related to hippocampal calcification, age, diabetes, and smoking. If you smoked or had diabetes, you were 50% more likely to have hippocampal calcification. Also, older age was associated with calcification. For every extra year of age, there was a 5% likelihood of calcification. There was no difference between men and women. The next issue was to determine if calcification was associated with cognitive function. Of the nearly 2,000 people in the study, 42% were diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. 25% had mild cognitive impairment. The authors added up all of the possible risk factors, including smoking, diabetes, age, and gender. The regression equation was set up to see if those risk factors were associated with cognitive impairment. There was no association with cognitive impairment. Conclusion. There is new knowledge here. Several points were not previously known, mostly because prior studies had much smaller sample sizes. Here are the main points. Number one, calcification of the hippocampus is more frequent in the brain if you have diabetes or if you smoke. The other factor is age. These are well-known risk factors related to vascular disease. You can think of diabetes and smoking as causing accelerated aging. The current results in thousands of patients strongly reinforce pathology studies that abnormal arterial vascular calcifications are associated with hippocampal calcification. Number two, hippocampal calcification is not associated with cognitive decline that could be detected. This contradicts earlier small studies. In those studies, there was no multivariable adjustment for factors such as smoking and diabetes. Number three, if you dictate a CT scan with extensive calcification and want to make a comment, indicate if hippocampal calcification is on one or both sides and if it is mild, moderate, or severe. The clinical significance is not known. Overall, this article reminded me of other landmark research articles on calcification. Radiologists mostly ignored coronary artery calcification on CT scans for many years. It was so common, radiologists could not even think of it as important. It simply seemed that if you were older, you had more coronary calcification. Then, two cardiologists published a research article in a cardiology journal called the Journal of the American College of Cardiology, or JAC, in 1990. The first author of that article also wrote a best-selling book called The South Beach Diet. His name is Arthur Agatston. He made a lot more money from the diet book. But in cardiovascular medicine, we quantify coronary calcification by the Agatston method, first published in 1990. The NIH has spent several hundred million dollars on research since then about coronary calcification. The three most powerful reasons for coronary artery calcification are the same as in the brain, age, diabetes, and smoking. Sometimes simple observations can be quite powerful. The last article for today is about renal cell cancers and early treatment. The problem is growing, with many small tumors being incidentally detected by imaging studies. The title is, 
Ablation versus resection for stage 1A renal cell carcinoma, national variation in clinical management and selected outcomes. The article first author is Dr. Johannes Ulig. The senior author is Dr. Kevin Kim. They're at Yale University. Background. Stage T1A renal cell cancers are up to 4 centimeters and are in the kidney only. Overall survival is about 80%, but this depends on age and comorbidities. The treatments are either surgery or minimally invasive thermal ablation. Thermal ablation can be either cryoablation or radio wave ablation. Surgery is typically partial nephrectomy. National guidelines call for consideration of thermal ablation, especially for older individuals. No differences in survival have been demonstrated for percutaneous thermal ablation versus laparoscopic thermal ablation. A prior survey suggested that thermal ablation is underused compared to surgery. Purpose. The purpose of this study was to compare the use of thermal ablation to surgery in a large United States database. Methods. The National Cancer Database was used. This contains data in about 70% of cancer cases in the U.S. The records were evaluated from 2004 to 2013. Adult patients were evaluated. The authors looked at the use of surgery and thermal ablation and overall survival. Results. Number one. Thermal ablation was used to treat only 9% of approximately 56,000 patients. By comparison, 91% of patients had surgery. About 60% of those who had surgery had a partial nephrectomy. The remainder had complete nephrectomy. Number two. Patients who had thermal ablation were about eight years older than those who had surgery. They were usually white males with treatment in an academic medical center. Thermal ablation was the most common in the Southeast Atlantic region, where about 12% of patients had thermal ablation. Number three. In the database, 4,817 patients had thermal ablation. The authors found 4,817 matching patients who had surgery, The groups were matched on age and gender and other comorbidities. When this matched group was compared, 30-day and 90-day survival was better for thermal ablation. At 90 days, no patients with thermal ablation had died. However, 68 patients who underwent surgery had died. Number four, long-term survival. The five-year survival for nephrectomy was 82%. The five-year survival for thermal ablation was not as good at 76%. The situation was different, however, for patients who were more than 65 years old. The survival for this older group was the same for both procedures, about 54 to 59% at five years. Conclusions. Clearly, minimally invasive techniques resulted in fewer immediate complications, as well as fewer deaths at 30 and 90 days. However, in general, survival is somewhat better for surgery compared to percutaneous thermal ablation. For patients who are older than 65 years, survival is comparable for both techniques. This is likely because patients who are referred for thermal ablation are older and more frail. They may not withstand the rigors of surgery. If they have surgery, they could have a number of complications that could result in death. This is yet another study that also shows wide variation in treatment depending on where you live in the United States. If you live in the Northeast United States, 94% of patients have surgery. If you live in the southeast United States along the coast, only 88% of patients have surgery. These referral biases might have to do with income levels, training, and tradition for the various procedures. The conclusion? 
If you are younger and otherwise in good health, it seems that surgery is the best option for long-term health. Otherwise, as patients get older, their survival is the same with thermal ablation. It is likely that their quality of life will be better as well, with fewer complications after the thermal ablation procedures compared to surgery. That concludes this week's articles. I hope these podcasts were helpful to you. Until next time, this is Dr. David Blemke for the journal Radiology. I hope you have a good rest of your week.